I want to invite you to turn again back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. As you know, we have been, uh, for those of you that are visiting today, we have been coming through the Bible and uh, we've been taking a book-by-book look at how Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is revealed in every book. And uh, we know that the Bible is written around the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and there's many attributes of, of Christ and in, in throughout the Bible, but one of the greatest ways to study him is to see how that each book of the Bible represents uh, something about the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the book of 1 Corinthians, we've come to the fact where in this book, we, we now know that uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is portrayed as Christ our Lord. And that's interesting because as we know uh, now by the book of 1 Corinthians, this church has got a lot of issues. And chapter by chapter, you find that they're struggling with things that, very frankly, uh, are what most Christians struggle with. Uh, they, as a church, like most Christians today, uh, are spiritually immature. Paul calls them spiritual babies. And they've got many, many problems in their life, many, many struggles within the church. And chapter by chapter, he goes through and really focuses on and deals with uh, these issues. Now, for us, that's a great thing because it shows us then as the church the cause and the effect of why things happen to people the way that they do and then gives us the insight how we as the church uh, are to reach out and to help people. And so we know that when we got into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I told you we were going to take a, 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 a time with this because in this particular chapter, he deals with one of the greatest issues that not only was an issue of them. Did you pay for that Bible, Phil? I saw you go back there and get that. All right, good. Uh, make sure it's on his tab back there, okay? No, I'm just kidding. We know that, we know that, uh, that all of these things are very important. And their issue there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 stands for the major issue that we deal with in churches today. And that is the issue of people getting married and then people getting divorced, and then people getting remarried. And the Bible uh, has a lot to say about that, and, and obviously uh, we saw how marriage uh, was defined in the Bible. We have taken this chapter and talked about how that, the reason why we want to spend some time with it, because I want you to understand, uh, not only uh, if you've ever been through that scenario, many of you have, most of you have not, but if God puts people into your life that are struggling with things, that are caught in this area, and God wants you to be the one that he, uh, that you, that he uses to help that person get through it, you need to understand what the Bible says. You've already been able to see, if you've been with us every week, that the Bible's treating of this is a radical uh, turnabout from what most churches do and how they look at it simply because that most of them do not follow the Bible anymore. So, uh, we have come through this, and so far, we talked about, uh, I told you that there were 20 basic rules that you follow in the aspect of these three areas, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We've now looked at six of them, and we now know that uh, rule number one, if you remember, was the fact that in the, that in the Old Testament, there were grounds for a divorce. Moses gave those grounds because the hardness of the people's heart. But in the New Testament, there are no grounds for a divorce. And that is why we now know because there should be nothing that two Christians cannot work out together. But in a perfect world, that may be true. But as we've said many, many times, we don't live in a perfect world. Therefore, 
we have the reasons that we have. And we've been talking about that, and we'll talk about that again today. Well, the second rule was that Paul talked about the gift of celibacy, being able to stay single and never marry. We know that that's not for everybody. I'd say today it's probably not for hardly anybody, but it's a gift that God gives to certain people, and we covered that. We talked about how the Bible says that the saved person, and the example was the wife, is not the lever husband. That's because that we're supposed to be able to work things out, and uh, we, uh, we, we talked about that. But then we, in the very next verse, we saw that he gave a New Testament exception, and that is what we call and we now understand as a biblical separation. Sometimes the situation gets so volatile. Sometimes it gets so absolutely impossible that uh, the only way that you can, you can deal with it is to basically go to neutral corners and under the structure of a New Testament local church uh, with people involved in helping you, uh, then in time you can, you can try to get that worked out and get back together. And then we, we added two more last week, and we talked about in particular circumstances uh, where you have people that find themselves, where we talked about the reasons for this, that maybe a saved person is now married to an unsaved person, whether it be a man or a woman or a woman to a man. We, we talked about the Bible says, and the fifth one was, that if a man is with an unsaved wife and they get along and the unsaved wife is pleased to dwell with them, the husband's not just to say, well, I'm a Christian now or I got right with God, so I got to leave you. That's not an option. That's not what you do. Rule number six was the reverse of that. You have a woman with an unsaved husband, and they get along. They, and that happens many, many times. And the Bible says that just because now you recognize that you should not have married an unsaved person, however it happened, you don't leave that person, you stay with them. And now we know why, and we're going to talk about it again here just a little bit, because that's what God does. God will reach down through the person who wants to do what's right and will always inject himself in any scenario through that. And that's why it's so important, one, not to want to always do what's right, but to always understand the biblical principles. Along with these rules, we have learned a ton of biblical concepts. And uh, I can't tell you uh, how important those are and how that in this particular area that uh, when you learn these, that they really become the backbone of how you deal with people. And you've heard me say, and I say it again, that, that everybody is different. Every circumstance is different. It's hard for me to stand up here and, and give a textbook scenario that fits everything that you deal with. That's not going to happen. But the biblical principles are always the same. You may have to vary in how you use them. I used the example of a lawyer last week. Uh, with a law library. When he's got a case that he's got to defend, he'll go to his law library and he'll pull out many, many, many law books that deals with case law on the particular subject he's going to do. He may get 14 or 15 books that, so that he's prepared to, to understand all of the ramifications of what he's going to have to defend. And for you and for me, we need to do the same thing, not with law books, but with biblical principles. You ought to build in your life a library of biblical principles that you keep in here uh, out of the Word of God that helps you uh, work through and deal with everything in your life. A lady said to me a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about some issues that she was going through, and she said to me something that, I, that many people have said to me many, many times in the last many years of my life, and she basically says, wouldn't it be wonderful 
wouldn't it be wonderful if God, if God just didn't come down and he just made every decision that she had to make for you? She said, life would be so simple if God would just come down and make every decision you had to make so you'd never get screwed up. And she said that to me. She's a nice lady. She doesn't go to our church. Yeah, there are nice ladies that don't go to our church, yes. And she said that to me, and she was as honest as she could be. And I said, I looked at her, and I smiled, and I said, well, you know what? I, I really appreciate what you said, but the truth of the matter is, he's already made every decision for you. He just put it in a book. I got news for you. He has made every decision for you that you've got to make. You'll never have to make a decision by yourself. You never have to. God is not going to come down and, and tell you individually when you're faced with a problem, but he wrote you a book of principles that tells you exactly how to make every decision in life based on just as good as he was already there. You know what the Bible says over there in Peter, don't you? It says we have a more sure word of prophecy. And that more sure word of prophecy, if you read that context, is more sure than the very voice of God. And the reason why that verse is in there is because God doesn't come down and speak to us anymore audibly like he did to the prophets and Moses and those guys in the Old Testament. He doesn't do that because now he's given us his written revelation, the Word of God, which is the very voice of God, which gives you the mind of God, which gives you everything you need never to make a wrong decision. And truthfully, she's a nice lady, and I really like this lady, and I think she's obviously saved. But you know what the truth of the matter is? If God came down today and started telling us about the decisions we got to make tomorrow, you know what we do, some of us? We wouldn't listen to him anyhow. We think the fact that God would come down and stand in our presence and say, Bob, this is what you need to do, that that suddenly would make us do it. It doesn't work that way. Human nature is not any different if God was here than he is if he's in that book. And he is here. He's living inside you if you're saved. So, you know, we get these ideas that, oh, if God would just come down and tell me, hey, he's already told you what to do. And the fact is we don't listen to him, and that's why we make the problem, we get into the problems we, we get into. And so we've learned a lot of great biblical principles on how God views the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And we've got some really good, solid Bible definitions now. We saw last week also how that God uh, sanctifies the marriage. That means set it apart. He sets apart the marriage uh, for the saved person uh, and the children. And so we know now that if a person does find themselves into a situation where uh, one is saved and one is not, through however, we talked about the different ways that happens. God doesn't throw you under the bus. He, he always covers our weaknesses and he always makes a way. And you know what? I think that at the end of last week's message, and I've really tried to put this all the way through the message, and it's certainly true today in this message, I think the greatest single teaching that comes from this chapter, when you read it and get all of the rules together, get all the principles together, is the great fact that there's always, and in any situation we find ourselves, there's always something that we can do. God never leaves us in a place where there's no options for us. Granted, the longer you wait to fix the problem, the harder the option may be. The longer you wait to deal with the problem, the, the, the harder it may be. And, you know, there's a great story in the Bible, and, I, and, and this is so true. And if you go through the New Testament, you'll find that there's, there's, there's three or four uh, different people that uh, uh, are dead in the Bible. 
And when you find them in the Bible, somebody dead, especially in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's always going to be a picture of an unsaved person. And the first little girl, the story you find is a little girl that's 12 years old. And this little girl is 12 years old and she's dead. And Jesus goes into her and, and uh, they, they say she's died. And he, he brings her back to life. And immediately, you know, she's up and on her way and she's doing what, everything that she needs to do. Then as you go on through the Bible and the New Testament, there's another story about a guy that probably is in his 30s and his 40s. And he's dead. And here, too, it's a picture of an unsaved man. And Jesus brings him back to life. You know, that's the picture. If you're here this morning and you're not saved, you may be walking around, talking, eating, driving a car, but spiritually, you're dead. You're as dead as any man in the cemetery spiritually. And so these pictures of people who are physically dead in the Bible, when God brings them back to life, it's a picture of you and me before we were saved, how we were dead in trespasses of sin. But when Jesus saved us, he brought us, as the old song says, out of the darkness into the light. And now you're alive in Christ Jesus. So this guy's about 30 or 40. And when he dies and he brings him back, he needs help. He just doesn't get up and bebop around like the 12-year-old. He needs help, and, 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 and they feed him, and, they, and they, they help him to walk. And then you got a man in the Bible who's an old guy. His name is Lazarus. He's probably 70 or 80 years old, and he dies. And when he dies, Jesus shows up. You know the story of Mary and Martha. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus comes back from the dead. But in this particular case, now keep in mind, you had a little 12-year-old girl, and you're told that she's 12. She's up, gone. You have the guy that's in 30 or 40. Once he comes back to life, he gets life. He needs a lot of help. And then you got Lazarus, who's probably in his 70s or his 80s, and when he dies and brought back to life, the Bible says he's wrapped in grave clothes, and the Bible says that Jesus says to the people around him, loose him and let him go. They had to completely unwind him from all of the grave clothes. Do you know what those three pictures represent? They represent the longer you wait to get saved, the harder it is to do something for God after you get saved. The little girl, 12 years old, up and at him. The guy, 30 or 40, he had to have help. But Lazarus, after 70 and 80 years, you don't just walk away from 70 or 80 years of living your life and doing your own thing and then serve God. He needed a lot of help. My point is this. The longer you wait to get help, the longer you wait to get what you need in your marriage relationship or even your own personal relationship, the harder it is. But the great concept is that God always has something that you can do. There'll never be a time in your life, and if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, because maybe somebody's here that's not saved, or maybe you're here this morning and you're really left out in left field, you know, as far as, uh, you know, your own personal relationship with God. My, my point is this. There will never be a time in your life that God won't help you get where you need to get to get out from under the weight of what you're under. But there will come a time where God will not be able to help you because you will put yourself so far down you will not allow God to help you. My advice to you, never get to that state. My advice to you, don't ever let that happen. Get to the place in your life as quickly as you can that no matter how hard it may be, no matter what you got to do, you do what God says to do in that book to get your life where God wants it to be, whether you're saved or whether you're lost. The longer you wait, the harder it's going to be.
Then we looked at three new aspects that we put into a marriage relationship that really kind of gave it more clarity. That is the aspect of lordship, fellowship, and relationship. Lordship is your own personal relationship with God. Fellowship is the walk that you have with God. And then relationship is you take those two and bring them into the relationship with your spouse. And that goes back to saying the great principle that your your marriage together will only be as strong as your individual relationship is separately. And that's just the way that it is. Then we wove one great theme uh, through our our message last week, and we're going to do so again today. And that's the great concept that's found in uh, verse 15. And it simply says, but God hath called us to peace. The bottom line with the Bible is reconciliation and true reconciliation. You always find husbands and wives who, in any given scenario, once they get separated or even they get divorced or they have all kinds of problems, uh, they'll say whatever they got to say. They'll say, I'll do whatever I got to do. And then once they get back together, you know, then it starts to go back and the guy begins to get an attitude or the gal begins to get an attitude. And now they begin to renege on what they said they were going to do. And uh, it goes right back to where it was before. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about God has called us the true peace. And the only way that you in a marriage scenario can understand and have the true reality that it's really real is under the structure of a New Testament local church that keeps both parties accountable. Because human nature by itself will always take the shortcut. Human nature by itself, usually whatever, whatever, the, problem, whatever the problem is that you have in a marriage, it'll always be the thing you've got to watch the most because it, it, it'll never just eradicate itself and go away. It'll always be something you have to keep your thumb on. It'll always be something you have to keep the biblical principles built around because it'll always creep out of the box and it'll always come back and be your problem. If you don't deal with it biblically and honestly, then it's, it's, it's always going to be. I've seen that with alcoholics. Alcoholics, most alcoholics don't think they're alcoholics. Most alcoholics think they can handle the drinking and they really can't. And so unless something really radically changes in their life, nothing really changes. Let me tell you something, and this is a great principle. I don't know what your problem is. Over the years, I've seen many, many problems that people have had that have caused them to split up. Many times it is alcohol. Alcohol is a terrible thing. Many times it's drugs. Many times it's just, you know, it's just other things in your life. Many times I've seen many, many men have tremendous anger problems where their anger gets explosive. And you couldn't tell that and they got an anger problem any more than you could tell the guy that's an alcoholic is an alcoholic. Because only other people really see our problems because we don't get honest with ourselves. And the bottom line is this. I don't care what you do, where you go. You can have have an alcohol problem. You can go to Alcoholics Anonymous for 100 years. You could have an anger problem and you could get everybody's book on it, and you could spend the rest of your life living next to Dr. Phil. You could have a problem and go through the rest of your life doing uh, what everybody tells you. But I, want, I got some a great new, bad news for you. Until you look at ever whatever your problem is and you see it as God sees it and you hate it like God's hate it, you'll never change it. You can go to Alcoholics Anonymous for the rest of your life. If you don't see how God hates it, and make that hatred your hatred against the thing that ruins your family, ruins your life, you're never going to change it. 
If you don't see your anger issue as something that that is going to destroy everything and has destroyed everything and will continue to destroy everything and you you don't see that as God sees it and put it under a structure of a New Testament church where you can be held accountable and deal with it, you'll never change it. And you'll just go back to say, I'm sorry, she's dumb enough to believe you and it just moves right on down the line. And of course, that's just... That's why these things keep never get solved. God has called us to peace. I didn't give you the references for this last week, so I'm going to give you now. I told you that the peace of God is in two formats. Peace with God in the Bible is found in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. That is the day you got saved. The day you got saved, you made peace with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, after you get saved, you don't have to make peace with God anymore. Now you have the peace of God. And that passes all understanding, and the Bible says it keeps your hearts and minds. And that will be found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. Now, today, we want to begin reading again in chapter 7, and we want to pick it up around verse 12 and then come down through verse 24 And as we move through this chapter. But before we do that... You know, I've injected great concepts into this because I think the concepts that that I give you help you better understand not only the context of what we're reading, but how to use it and gives you an insight into some things. So I have throughout this stopped for a moment of time and injected things into this uh, that helps you get definitions, that helps you understand uh, biblical principles, how they're laid out. And at this time, I think it's time to give you this Uh, It's probably, for me, the greatest single principle that I follow in dealing with people, human beings and human nature. And I'm going to introduce to you probably the single greatest principle that I follow. Now, I have a lot of principles that I follow, but there's one simple principle that I, everything I deal with, it goes back to this. Uh, There are some principles that will apply maybe to this situation or not to this one or this one or that one or maybe this will talk. These group over here, this one will go to everything that you deal with. Some of you already know it because you've worked with me with people for many years and we've talked about it uh, and I've showed you how to use it. Many of you have, I don't ever, I've never preached on this before, I don't think. I, I don't think we ever had this question in Bible study. Uh, it probably got out by word of mouth, if some of you know it, or the private times. But this is the greatest single principle that I use in dealing with people that helps me understand what I'm dealing with. Now, I told you this before. I don't judge people. I don't care what problems you have. A husband and a wife can come in and he can be this and sh- or she can be this and, and I never look at one worse than the other. I, I just, you, can't, you can't do that in dealing with people. A sin is sin. And, it, you know, we look at things differently. You know, a guy steals $250,000 out of a credit union someplace and somebody at work, you know, going down the thing sees a dollar bill laying on a guy's desk and nobody's looking around. He puts it into his pocket. You know, we in the world that we live in, we think there's a difference. Because obviously, $250,000 is a lot different monetarily than a dollar. But you know what? God doesn't see the $250,000 of the dollar. God just sees the heart of two thieves. So you've got to learn those things. God doesn't see the dollar amount. Now, obviously, the dollar amount will have more ramifications with it. The dollar you'll probably get away with. You're going to go to prison for the $250,000 probably. 
But God doesn't see the amount. God just simply sees the heart of two thieves. You know what God knows? God knows what we don't know or don't want to know. God knows that the guy that stole a dollar would have stole the $250,000, but he had a chance. He just didn't get that big opportunity. <laughs> so he took what he could get, you see. And, and I, don't, I don't ever deal with people and judge them. I, I really don't. I know people are people. I know we all got our problems. I, mean, I know that uh, human nature, I, I follow what God says in the Old Testament when he talked about Israel. One of the greatest passages back there, he's talking about Israel, and he talks about all that she did to him and how he loved her, and he, she stuck the stick in his eye, both eyes, and, and you know, and, and uh, you say, well, in Revelation, the Bible says he's got seven eyes. Well, then she stuck him in all seven eyes, but she just stuck him. And yet at the end of that thing, he says, ah, but you were just flesh. You were weak. You're like the grass that grows up and the sun comes up and you melt away. He understands that we have problems. He understands that we're human. That doesn't lessen the consequences of disobeying God because those automatic principles, Galatians 6, 7, start to come in. But God, God doesn't judge us yet. God will judge us at the great white throat judgment if you're lost under the judgment seat of Christ uh, if you're a, cis, a Christian. Right now, you're supposed to judge yourself. And so I never judge people. People come in with problems. You know what? I just take them where they're at. Bible says, yet even though I don't judge people, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, it talks about the fact that he that is spiritual judgeth all things. See, you don't judge people, but I do make a judgment on what people do. Because it isn't about you, it isn't personal. It's just that if you do right things, good things are going to happen to you. If you do bad things, bad things are going to happen to you. And the principle that I use in dealing with people, and every time I talk with them in any scenario, it's probably the single greatest principle I ever use. And it's found in 1 Kings chapter 3. And I want to introduce to you, for the most of the people that don't know this, the Solomon principle. And I think this is single-handedly the greatest principle that you will use in dealing with people. And you're going to see how it fits into what we're talking about today. And I haven't, I waited purposely till we got to this section so you would be able to make the correlation between the two. Now, I'm going to pick it up in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 16. I'm going to read you a story. It says, Then came there two women, coming to Solomon, that were harlots, under the king and stood before him. And the one woman said, O my Lord, I and this woman dwell in one house, and I was delivered of a child with her in the house. And it came to pass on the third day after I was delivered that this woman was delivered also, and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, save we two in the house. And this woman's child died in the night because she overlaid it. She rolled over on it. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while thine handmaid slept and laid it in her bosom, and laid her dead child in my bosom. When I arose in the morning to give my child suck, behold, it was dead. But when I had considered it in the morning, behold, it was not my son, which I did bear. The other woman said, Nay, but the living is my son, and the dead is thy son. And this said, No, but the dead is thy son, and the living is my son. Thus they spake before the king. Now you can see the problem. Now this is the problem you're going to get into every time Two people come into your house or your office or wherever you talk to them. This is the problem you're going to have when a single comes in and start to tell you their version of whatever their problem is in life. Now, let's go on just so you get that. Then said the king, the one saith, this is my son that liveth and thy son is dead. 
And the other said, Nay, but thy son is the dead, and this son is the living. And the king said, Bring me a sword. And they brought a sword unto the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Then spake the woman whose the living child was unto the king, for her bowels yearned upon her son. And she said, O my Lord, give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. But the other said, Let it be neither mine nor thine, but divide it. Then the king answered and said, Give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. She is the mother thereof. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. Now, i got to confess to you, I read that story years and years ago, and there's another place where it's accounted in the Bible, and it says after this great event that all Israel wondered after the wisdom of Solomon. I got to be honest with you, when I first read that, I thought that was probably a pretty stupid thing to do. I mean, I didn't see the wisdom in it. I mean, what if they both would have said, go ahead and cut it in half? Would have Solomon have done that? And then, you know, as I grew up in time and and learned my Bible and started working with people and getting principles in the Word of God, one day the lights came on. I understood exactly what he's talking about here. You see, this scenario fits every scenario that I deal with. It fits every scenario that you're going to deal with. Because Solomon didn't know these women from Adam. He didn't know Adam either, but he didn't know them in any way, shape, or form. Yet the Bible says they're both harlots. Both of their characters are in question. Neither one of them are married. They obviously have these children out of wedlock. They're harlots. And now they come before the king who doesn't know them from anybody and they're laying out and talking this great story. Now he doesn't know who's telling the truth or who isn't. He doesn't have a clue of which one's being honest and which one's lying. He does know that one of them is lying. Figuring it out, I mean, they both, reading the thing, they both sound pretty convincing to me. You know, you're going to get in scenarios sometime where people come in and they start telling you their issues and, uh, and, and you, you want to believe them. But if you're smart, you take caution in believing what somebody says. I've learned over the years that people tell their side of the story simply by telling their side of the story. They want to, it's human nature. We want to make us not look as bad as we really are. And that's why people who have problems, they don't always want to admit they have a problem. We all have one inherent character from Adam's fall. And you notice it all the way back, you notice it all the way back uh, with Adam and Eve. And that is that we like to blame our problems on somebody else. When, uh, when, When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they had a perfect setup back there and the devil showed up. You know what happened. You know what happened? When God came down and finally cornered them and got them together, he said, Adam, what did you do? What did Adam say? He said, well, the woman you gave me did gave me that food. See? Blamed it on her. Then God looked at her and he said, what did you do, woman? She said, the devil. She blamed it on the devil. Rule number one is nobody really wants to take personal responsibility for who they really are. Poor devil gets blamed for more things than, you know, than, than we could ever think of. And I, I got a shock for you. Next time you think the devil's coming down and laying on you and giving you all kinds of problems, I got some great news for you. The devil doesn't waste interballistic cotton missiles on mosquitoes. Devil's not going to come after you or me. You know why? He didn't have to. We'll do a fine job of screwing ourselves up. 
That's, we get the idea that the devil is, you know, hovering over us, you know, uh, giving us all. No, 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 no. That's, you read that in hot stuff comics. That's not true. Uh, you see it on, on a paranormal. That's not the way it works in the Bible. He doesn't waste his time with you and me. Why, your flesh and my flesh will do just fine because uh, that's the way it works. And uh, you didn't see any devil back there in Genesis 3 when God's meeting with them. He's gone. He's over behind the bushes laughing someplace. He's watching the whole thing go down. No, human nature said, no, the woman, God, you gave me, she did it. And then she said, well, the devil that you created, he made me do it. And that's what we do. The Solomon principle fixes that. Solomon had no idea. And you're going to find yourself when they come in and they talk to you that you don't know really who's telling the truth and who's not because everybody likes to tell it from their position. And yet, you know, cutting two kids in, in, you know, in two doesn't sound, it sounds pretty stupid to me. It's like telling, I mean, to me, it's like telling somebody, if you just come to church, get in the Bible, come to Thursday night Bible study and get in a prayer group and start putting the Word of God in your life, it'll solve all your problems. That sounds pretty stupid too, but it works. Then as I got older, I saw, I saw what he was talking about and I saw the great spiritual principle. Because Solomon calling for a sword and threatening to cut that child in two, to simplify it, the sword produced it who was lying. And the New Testament principle goes along with this in Hebrews chapter 4. Because the word of God is likened to a sharp two-edged sword. And the word of God will always produce who's lying in time. Now, when you learn this principle, you'll understand why I do the way I do. Two people come in, they have issues, they have problems, they want to fix them. You know what I do? I don't know who's lying. I like them both. I know they're both sinners. I'm not under any delusion that one is better off than the other. I know that it ca- both people cause problems. I understand that. I'm not interested in where the perpetrator is. I'm interested in who wants to do what's right with truth. So I'm, I'm like Solomon. They're both messed up as far as I'm concerned. And I don't know which is right. I, I haven't been walked around them and watched them for the last 10 years, 5 years, 15 years, 20 years. So I only have one option. I do the same thing that Solomon did. I put them under a sword. And when you put somebody, two people, under the accountability of the Word of God, the sword, you know what the sword always does? It produces who wants to do what's right and who doesn't. It'll always produce the truth. Over there in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the Word of God is quick, I'll say it is, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the designing of the sun or the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. Here it comes. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now that's what the Bible does. That's what the sword did. You notice that when he put him under the sword in, back in 1 Kings 3, it didn't take very long to find the truth. You know why? Because the word of God, a sharp two-edged sword, is quick. You know, you can fake a lot of things, folks. And I love you to death. You can fake a lot of things. I can fake a lot of things. I do fake a lot of things. So do you. But I'll tell you one thing you can't fake. You can't fake true spirituality. You can't. I mean, you can fake this and you can, you know, you can, I mean, you can, as the Bible says, you know, you can put gold earrings in a pig, but it's still a pig. And you can gussy yourself all up and look nice and, and shave and, and cut your hair the right length and get a 75-pound King James Bobby up to carry in a wagon because it's so big behind you. And the bottom line is, at the end of the day, that doesn't make you spiritual. 
It doesn't fix anything. The only thing that that book does is it's quick. It shows you pretty quickly because you can't fake true spirituality. There's something about being under the, uh, the authority of that sword. There's something about you having to listen to it every week when there's things down in your life you really don't want to fix that pretty soon you just say, I'm going someplace else. I'll just do something else. And you can have every excuse in the world that the Bible's already ratted you out. You're running under the Solomon principle and you failed the test, you see. Because that Bible says that, that neither is there any creature that is not manifested in his sight. But all things are naked and open under the eyes of him which we have to do. And when you put the Solomon principle in effect in anybody's life, just as Solomon brought out a sword and said, okay, just cut the baby in half because I don't know what's going on here. When you put two people under the authority of the word of God, that book, the sword, will always show you which one wants to do what's right and which one does not want to do what's right. It'll show you which one is really wants to fix the problem and which one does not. And it doesn't matter what they say, doesn't matter what their excuse is. God's structure for this day and age that we live in is the New Testament local church and the Word of God. Putting another structure or some other structure into your life, no matter what it may be, and not facing the issues and dealing with them is the stop, what we're going to talk about today. And this is exactly what happens. It doesn't take long because the Bible says it's a quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces even the design, the, the, the uh, dividing asunder. It divides. It shows you what's real. It shows you who's real. So you don't have to sit there and say, well, I don't like, I don't think he's on the up and up. I don't think she's, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't think she's really wants to do what's right. Somebody else says, I don't think he's going to do what's right. You don't have to say that. You put him under the sword and the sword will produce who's going to do what's right. You're getting a scenario that six weeks, eight weeks, three months down the line, you don't have to get mad at me about it. You don't have to even warn me about it. When they start to backpedal and not to do what they said they were going to do, you know what you're dealing with. When they say, oh, I want my marriage to work, I want to do this, I want to do that, but, but I'm not going to go to church, I'm not going to get with you, I'm not going to get the help I need, I'm just going to, hey, you know what you're dealing with. You see, life is really simple when you just use the sword. This is one of the single greatest principles that you're ever going to find. It's one of the single greatest principles that simplifies of dealing with people because you don't know what's going on. So let the, let the Bible do the work for you. Let the authority of the sword in their life show you who's real and who's not. So with that principle in hand, let's read over our text here and begin to lay out the next set of rules and Bible principles on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Now we want to begin today uh, where kind of where we left off last week uh, and we'll back up here in verse 12. And then we already went through those, but puts it into a context. And then we'll move on into uncharted territory here. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. That was one we covered last week. Then verse 13. And the woman which hath a husband that believeth not, and if she be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. Now this is the two that we gave you last time, 12 and 13. Then we're going to start today. Uh, uh, in, well, we've got to read 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, 
and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, else were your children unclean. But now they are holy. Now here it comes, verse 15. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. Now in verse 15, we have another great principle, and this is going to lead us to rule number seven here in just a moment. And again, I want you to see that the concept of verse 15 is based on verse 6 and verse 12. This is added material. Uh, he said in verse 12, but that the rest speak I, not the Lord. He's now giving you extra, extra material for the church that's not found in the Old Testament because we're under grace now. They were under a law back then. It's not the same. We already know that's why we don't use Matthew 19 and Matthew 5 because that's not to the church. Now, he says there, but if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now, rule number seven is simply this. God will always provide, God will always provide for the person who wants to do what's right in any given situation. This is why the Solomon principle is so important. The only way you can find the person who wants to do what's right is by an unfathomable system that shows you under the authority of a sword uh, which one is lying and which one wants to do what's right by the Bible the way it needs to be done and the one that doesn't. So God will always provide for the person, male or female, who wants to do right in any given situation and who will do right. Now, in a perfect scenario, and I told you last week that I can't get into all the different ramifications, so I got to pretty much give you a textbook case in some of these. In time, you will learn how to do that and make it work for you. But in a perfect scenario, here's how it should work. Now, for those of you that are paying attention here and trying to learn this, watch how these principles Come in step by step as I tell you this scenario. Husband and wife come in to see me. They've got some very bad issues. And it's, it's not your garden variety type. This is, a, this is a bad deal. It's went way too long and it's gotten very bad. Uh, <clears throat> when they do get together, come into my office, it's World War III. They can't even drive in a car to my office. Anything that they say becomes explosive. There's no nice thing said. They don't have any good times together. It's a thing where he lives upstairs, she lives downstairs, and when they meet in the middle, they throw things at each other. It's that bad. It's a thing where they can't have any civil conversation without erupting. He can't say something to her without his anger just going off the scale. She can't, he can't do something to her. She's so, she's so uh, on guard against him that she looks at everything he does suspect. And it's just a real mess. And the wife, uh, you know, as the weaker vessel, I mean, this thing has gotten bad. Hurt has turned to anger. Anger has turned to bitterness. And now bitterness has turned to hatred. And, uh, you know, it's absolutely explosive. I mean, you can't, you can't even, sitting in a room, you can move. You can feel the tension radiating out of them. I mean, it's bad. It's, it's just really, like the radiation, it's just, you know, you can have four air conditioners on. It's 112 in here. It's really, really, really bad. The wife basically has a weaker vessel. She can't deal with it anymore. And sometimes it gets that way. She's absolutely broken. The husband has failed to meet her spiritual needs, her emotional needs, and her physical needs. There's been, for whatever reason, no lordship, no fellowship, no relationship. And she simply comes to the point where she's just about as down and broken as she can get. Now, remember now, the whole purpose of everything here is to try to get this thing restored because God has called us to peace. But that's in a perfect world when you do what's right. In many, many cases, 
you know, it, it never gets to that point. She separates under the New Testament guidelines. She says, I just can't deal with it. And I've had many women over the years separate under the aspect that have told me. She, they say, you know what? I want to make this thing work, but this thing is so bad we can't talk. If we don't get some distance between us, if, we don't, if I don't get out of there, I'm going to wind up hating him and it's not going to be able to be fixed and I got to get out of the situation because it, it's a dead-end street. It's going nowhere. Every day it's worse. It's gotten terrible. I can't deal with it anymore and I want to do what's right, but it's so explosive that I cannot stay in that situation anymore because I'm going to completely turn against it and I don't want that to happen. So that's where the biblical separation comes in. I said, you don't get biblically separated so you can go out and party and do whatever you want to do. You're in a very bad, explosive situation. And in a perfect textbook scenario we're talking about here, that's what the woman does under 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. And uh, she, she separates with the idea of, of hopefully getting back together. The husband and the wife both, they start to come in separately now. It doesn't do any good together. I mean, it, it just doesn't. And you may not think that people can get to that point, but brother, they can. I'm telling you, they can. And when they get to that point, you're a fool to think that you can sit down with both of them and get anything accomplished. You can cut the, you can cut the air with a knife. So all you can do is get him in one at a time. And you start to deal with their individual issues. And that's really what needed to happen to begin with, but it got out of control. And I tell couples all this all the time. I tell the wife, you can't change your husband. I tell the husband, you can't change your wife. All you can change is who you are. And as I go back to the rule here, I told you that if you do what's right in your life and you change who you are and your spouse, husband or wife, won't change who they are, God's going to come down and take care of you and God's going to come down and deal with them. And sometimes that dealing is getting them out of the relationship. That's just the way that it works. God has called us to peace. But if you want to stand in the process or the way of the peace process, you'll see how that works out for you. And so they start to come in. And because they're out of the war zone, because a truce has been somewhat declared, and I can start to get the husband to take responsibility for where he's at and the wife to take the responsibility where she's at, and I get them to quit blaming each other and work on the lordship relationship, show him what his relationship should be, help him work through his anger issues, help him begin to put a process in his life that every time he feels that or that comes out of him, he knows what to do with it. Not going to happen overnight, but it will happen. Deal with a lady on how her problems and get her to recognize her lordship relationship. In time, if individually they start to work on their individual issues, not each other, not together, can't do that right now. Give themselves some breathing room. Get the gas away from the fire. And, and separately, they begin to build themselves individually. In time, they can get back together and restore that marriage. I've never seen it fail. You know why? Because God has called us to peace. But there has to be a new... Te- you can't do it your way. You can't get yourself in a mess. God puts you into a scenario that is biblical, and then you say, ah, you know what? I don't need that. I'll do it my way. That's a recipe for disaster. If you knew how to fix it, it should have been fixed by now. The very fact that you're now, what, five, six, seven, eight, ten years into this thing and it's not fixed, that would lead me to believe you can't fix it or you don't want to fix it. You decide. But that's the situation you find yourself in. And, uh, you know, when you you take it 
and you begin to deal with individual problems. And I tell people this all the time. We're famous for wanting to work in our areas of our lives on everything but what we need to. We are famous for wanting to put off the most important issue of fixing in our life to the last thing. That's human nature. And unless you get your head screwed in straight with God and the Word of God and you make those things your first things in your life, you're going to have some issues. I tell people three little simple concepts about fixing your problem. First thing you need to do is identify the problem. That means get honest with yourself. That means you need to, you need to realize that this issue is your issue. If it's alcohol, it's alcohol. If it's anger, it's anger. If it's pornography, it's pornography. Whatever it is, identify your problem. And then the next thing you do after you identify the problem, you isolate the problem. If you got a problem with anger, quit working on your prayer life. If you got a problem with anger, quit working on your soul winning skills. If you got a problem with anger, quit worrying about who the beast is in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. If you got a problem with anger, quit worrying about who the ten virgins are, five were wise and five were foolish. If you got a problem in your life, I, and you understand you do, and you get honest with yourself, and the next thing, you isolate that problem. That becomes the focus of your whole world. And maybe it'll be multiple problems, but you have to, walking away from it, pretending it isn't there, think, okay, well, I'll just let time pass, and it'll all smooth down, and I'll tell him or her how much I love him, and well, I'll get this back thing together, and we'll get a bonfire, hold hands, and sing kumbaya, which will lead to love potion number nine. That's an idiot stick. You got to identify your problem. You got to isolate your problem. And then when you get that thing isolated and you identify it, you got to annihilate it. You got to get every principle, everybody you can, anything in your life. You got to get in that church. You got to sit down with a pastor. You got to get what you need for your problem and not worrying about fixing her problem or her worrying about fixing his problem. You got to identify, you got to isolate, and you got to annihilate. You got to eradicate it out of your life. And you only do that with biblical principles. Now, this separation gives time for healing when it's done biblically. They both have to be in the same church, they both have to be under the same kind of, uh, of, of, of authority. Never, never work with anybody on a serious basis when they're going to somebody else's church. It's like a doctor doesn't treat somebody else's patients. You know what? You got to work with what God gives you. Don't worry about what God takes away from you. Uh, you, 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 you. You give them time. If it's done right, you get into a situation where it can heal. You don't keep tearing off the scab every time you're together. Time for reflection. Time for, for, the, for the identifying, for the isolation, and for the annihilation of the problem. God's Spirit, give him time to deal with each person. Add to that, they're here on Sunday morning. They're here on Thursday night. They have one-on-one time with me. They have their prayer groups or their support groups that help them. You got a recipe that's going to fix the point, get, fix the problem. And uh, it, all, it all gets you to a process. That in a process of time, they can get back together. But it's when, it's, when, it's when you start to see the attitude develop. It's when they don't want to be around God's people anymore. It's when they'll come to church, but they're not going to really get involved in anything. 
It's when they got an attitude that starts treading water backwards. It's when they say, well, I can't come to church anymore. You know, I'm going to go do something over here, but we're still going to work on our problem. You're out of your mind. No, no, excuse me. You're still out of your mind. You haven't fixed a thing, and you're not going to fix a thing. And those are the things, the process under the Solomon principle, it works. Now, let me explain this to you. Sometimes, not all cases are like this. Honestly, many, many people can work it out while they still stay together. It hasn't got that volatile yet. It isn't as explosive yet. But also, we know that sometimes this is a course of action people take, and after they separate, you find many, many times that either one of them or both of them simply won't want to do what's right. Now, we're talking about a scenario where one wants to do what's right and the other doesn't. We're talking about the Solomon principle. But the Solomon principle will show you when neither one of them want to do what's right. And, it, and the determining factor is, do you do what the Bible says? Where are you on Sunday morning? Where are you on Thursday night? Where are you at in the meetings that you get what you need? That's the key. That's the key. That's the key. Now, over the years, and literally a hundred of people, and, and over the course of years I've dealt with, there's one couple that stands out in my mind, that, uh, and I can't even remember their names. It's been years ago. And I've had many, 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 but this one was, a, this, this was always, <clears throat> this was around the time that I, I really began to understand the Solomon principle, so it always sticks out in my mind. And this is, a, this is a great example of verse 15, if the unbelieving depart, let him depart, and then the principle, uh, the rule of number seven. Now, this couple was probably, if I remember correctly, probably in their mid-30s. They've been married 10 or so years, I don't know, maybe 15 years. They had kids. But it was a terrible situation. It was a very bad marriage. And it went on way too long before help really got to them. You know, and they came in and talked to me and... <clears throat> I hear this all the time, you know. They both want to do what's right. And so at that point, I don't make a judgment. I just, okay, let's see. Put the sword over them, you see. And I give them a plan of action. I'm going to say it again. The Solomon principle is the greatest thing you ever use because you can lie to me, can't lie to that book. The Bible says, if any man love God, the same as know to him, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. And this verse isn't in the Bible, but I'll add it on to it anyhow. Like Paul did, I speak this by permission, not by commandment. If any man doesn't love God, it shows. Can't fake it. You can fake a lot of things. You can't fake true spirituality. Not when you got major medical problems. <clears throat> you can't, you know, it's like water. You know water goes everywhere? Do you ever have a pipe break in your house? <clears throat> The thing I hate about a leak in the roof is it, it's leaking in the kitchen, but the real hole in the roof is, is two blocks over. You have to pay somebody $1,000 to get up in your attic and, and watch the drip and watch it run down a pipe, jump over onto a board, run down the beam, run over here, come over here, go down on a grain, run over here, come back up, get over, and then leak over in the kitchen someplace. It goes everywhere. Your sin's the same way. You can't control it, see? And we deceive ourselves when we think we can. You can't hide it. You can't mask it. You, you think you can. But it's, you deceive yourself to think, it's like an alcoholic. He deceives himself to thinking that he's controlling alcohol. He's not. The alcohol is controlling him. It just allows you to think you're controlling yourself for the purpose of deception. Sin always controls us. 
That's why you got to break that control. So after two or three months of working with them, you know, the husband being under the Solomon principle, you know, it's obviously he's feeling uncomfortable. Now he's going to look for all kinds of other excuses. But in this case, because of the way it worked, he finally breaks down and he knows there's no avenue. He knows he wants out of this because now it comes out that there's another woman involved. And uh, he's not interested in fixing it. See, it's all been a sham up to this point. It was a sham the first time they came in. It was a sham the second time they come in. But that old Solomon principle just nails you. You can't come keep hearing the word of God unless you just like either you're, a, you're the kind of people who likes pain a lot or you just really know that a good chewing out from the Bible is the best thing you can get. Like the Bible says, uh, the Bible's a honeycomb, but even the bitter things are sweet. You learn to love it all. And so finally now we find out that the real issue, the Solomon principle has, has really done its work. And it doesn't have to be, enough. it can be anything. It could be an anger issue. It could be, you know, I had a situation where, uh, you know, the guy had a terrible pornography problem and it was affecting everything in his, wi- in his life, with his wife and everything like that. And it finally, after it came out, you know, it came out. Why? Because the Solomon principle works. Oh, he's sorry. Feels terrible. But in his mind now, this is where he goes. Oh, too much damage has been done. You know, I'm too hurt. I just, I can't come to church anymore. I'm going to still come to, I'm going to still be in my Bible, but I just can't come to church anymore. Or, I'll, I'll, you know, to him, <clears throat> there's nothing left to salvage, and he wants to move on. And it can go both ways. It doesn't have to be a husband. It can be a wife. It goes, the song goes both ways. He won't listen to biblical principles. He won't, he won't let anybody help him past this point. He rejects the idea of getting debimboed and working through his life with his relationship. That ain't in the cards. His mind is made up. He's going to leave it all and he's going to lose it all. Now, in this final meeting, and there's always a final meeting, in this last meeting, after his wife hears all of this, with tears running down her face, she looks up at me and says, Bob, now what do I do? I don't want to get a divorce. I know I've been a, a, I've been a part of this problem, and I know I've got my issues. And I, you know, I, I, for the first time we met, we talked. I knew there was things in my life I had to work on, and I want to work on them. But I, I, but I don't. Uh, but I want to do what's right, and I don't want to lose my marriage. Now, what do I do? And, and more important than that, if if, if he's going to leave, and I can't make him do what's right, how does God look at me now? Now you see, there's the scenario. Surprised you're not crying by now. I usually cry in these sad stories, but at times this, I was just, I can tell another version of it. I can really get it. He, she had no legs. <laughs> no, you know, I can't put this together when I do these at home and I'm thinking, she'll cry here. Yeah, she'll cry here. She'll cry here. Right there it is. Nikki is crying now, baby. Look and see. No. I say, well, dear, I know it hurts. And right now, I know that your world is probably as black as can be. And I understand all of that. And I know that not only now are you dealing with the fact that you had marital problems, but now you're also dealing with the fact that your marriage was a a grand deception. And it all hurts. But I think the thing that you've got to focus on today is 
you know, that situations like this are always in life. And you said it, the only thing you really got to worry about today, because the rest will take care of itself in time. You got a good church. You got people who love you. you you're learning the Bible. You, you've got the right attitude. You want to solve your problems. And you can't fix his. <clears throat> and your brain concern is the best concern I've heard today. And you're concerned now, how does God look at this? And I said, I'm going to give you a principle that you need to focus on, and this principle <clears throat> will get you through. With all the support you have around you <clears throat> and the teaching you get, the one-on-one time, <clears throat> and this is, where, this is where verse 15 comes in and rule number 7 begins to be applied. I look at her and I say, the Bible clearly says, but if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. She looks at me, begins to open her mouth to say something. The man says, oh, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, that, that can't be right because I'm a saved man. Then I look, well, 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 it is right. And the bottom line is, if you're a saved man, saved men do what's right. I mean, please don't tell me you're a saved man, a child of God. You know what's right. You know what's wrong. You have a Bible's chance to fix this and do what's right. And you just walk away from it. You see, the Solomon principle always deals with the issue. I look at her and I say, "Hun, the unbelieving depart, letting depart. You're free. You're not under bondage. You fix yourself. Get your issues right. Move on with your life. And oh, the hurt is now. It'll pass. It's you're clean in God's sight. We'll help rebuild you. We'll get everything done." Husband says, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, I don't like that. I told you I'm a saved man, and I said I told you if you're a saved man, do what's right." The proof of you and me being a child of God is not what we say. Welcome to reality church today. It's what do you do with what the Bible says when you're faced with the right or the wrong choice. This is the theme of 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, six, uh, Luke six forty six. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which, you, which I say? John 14, 23 says, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he'll what? Keep my words, and my Father will love him, and he will come into him and make our abode with him. What's John 8, 47 say? He that is of God, heareth God's word. You therefore hear them not. Why? Because you're not of God. No, that's what you got. You're not a Christian because you say you are. You're a Christian because when push comes to shove, you do what the Bible says. See, we live in a Christian world today. That, oh, I'll be a Christian. I'll just do whatever I want to do. Well, that may work in your world. It doesn't work with God. Now, maybe this guy was saved. Personally, I think he was. But the point of what I'm saying is, and what Paul's saying, is if you act like an unsaved man, then you get treated like an unsaved man. Because there's a good chance that's what you are. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you had a guy that had uh, sexual relations with his own father's wife. He wouldn't repent and do what's right. What did Paul say? Send him over the devil for destruction of the flesh. Treat him like an unsaved man. That's the concept. There's no latitude recognized in the Bible of not doing right. Save people do what's right. Unsaved people do what's wrong. It doesn't matter what the area is or the situation is. Rule number eight, if an unsaved person departs, 
he leaves or she leaves, they won't do what's right, then you're not under bondage anymore. You move on with life. You do what you got to do to protect yourself legally, and then you get on with it. The Bible just told you that a brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Rule number nine. Going back to what we said last week and really hitting it this week. You're not a Christian because you say you are. You're a Christian because you're a changed person. I, excuse me, I said I read this someplace. It must be just me. I thought old things were passed away. All things become new. Amen. No, no, no. It's old things are passed away, and the things I want in my life can be new, but I want to keep some old things. doesn't work that way. You see, the Solomon principle doesn't let you get away with that attitude. The Solomon principle forces you to a point where you're going to do right or you're going to do wrong. It erases the latitude that we like to put in our lives. It keeps you right down whose baby is this. That's why people, the first time they start having problems and the Holy Spirit of God starts to begin to deal with him, you know the first thing they do? Find another church. Oh, I can't do this anymore. You know, it's so hard. You're darn right it's hard. Well, you don't know what I'm going through. I know exactly what you're going through. He's got that sword dangling over your head. You want to play church. You think this is a nice, fun place. And now you realize that is a reality to what you're at. You got to fix what's wrong with you. And let's face it, we don't want to do that. We want to fix what doesn't need fixed. Now, I would dare seem to say if I came over to all of your homes today, <clears throat> and you say, look around all you want. <clears throat> there's probably one closet you hope I don't open. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong in it. It's just that's where you throw all your junk. And you don't want me to be killed by the avalanche of soccer balls, baseballs, footballs. Because we all have some place in our house where, and many times several places, that if you walk in, you know, you better turn the light on or you're going to kill yourself before you go five feet. And everything you don't know what to do with goes in that place. <clears throat> Every, you never know, ladies, you ever know how men always throw their dirty clothes in one place and step where they should throw it? <laughs> do you know why they do that? Because they don't want to have to deal with it right now. So we think in our minds <clears throat> that, you know, I go play softball, come home, my clothes are all sweaty. <clears throat> throw them in the closet. <clears throat> don't throw them in the clothes, Amber. Throw them in the closet. See, we do that because we don't want to deal with the issue. We think that if we put them in the closet, everybody will think they're just clothes in the clothes closet. No, when you're in there for a day and a half and you walk in, you know it's not the clothes that should be in that closet. <laughs> my point is, <clears throat> you tell God, come into my life. I'm yours now. I'm saved. You got everything. But don't open that closet over there. Because the things in that closet is what I want to keep. Because I put them in there because I don't want to deal with them. I put them in there because I got them hid. I put them in there. You can have all where you want to go. You know where God's going to go first? No, I'm, I'm more gracious than God. I don't mean that in a bad way. <clears throat> but if I come to your house and I know where the closet is, I'm not even going to go there. I'm going to give you some slack. Now, you know why I'll give you some slack? Because I don't want you coming to my closets. <laughs> so if you say, uh, have anything you want, but you know, don't open that door. I just, you know, you don't want to go in there. I, you know what? That's good with me. I don't want to go in there. You tell God that. You know what he's going to do? That's the first place he's going to go. It doesn't matter if you lock it, deadbolt it, 
Doesn't matter if you're welded shut. He's going to that door. And when you put yourself under the authority of the Word of God and you want to pretend everything is fine when it's not and you know what your problems really are and you don't want to fix them, you know what your big deal is, why you don't want to hang out because the solemn principle starts to turn the searchlight on, you know what you do? Your problem is that God's headed for your closet. That's why. Bible says all things were open, naked, under the eyes of him which we have to do. You're not fooling anybody. You best bet just put it under the blood and make it right with God and then change what you've got to change. You're kidding yourself. Now, let's look at the next section of verses here. You say, I'm glad he's off of that. It won't be for a minute. Believe me. Look at verse 16. For what knowest thou, O wife? Whether thou shalt save thy husband or thou knowest thou, old man, whether thou shalt save thy wife. Now, this verse 16 uh, is, is really the reason why you stay with that person in all the given scenarios before, even if you have to get a biblical separation, you still want to reconcile because you don't know what God's doing. You see, you got to give the Holy Spirit of God a chance. You can't have 10 years of bad marriage come into here, give me two months, and then walk out and say it isn't going to work. You took 10 years to get into it. It's going to take you longer than two months, six months to get out of it. You don't, look at, you don't look at things like that. You look at your own personal issues. Now, you're in a situation where you come in with your husband or the wife, and the wife, you know, you're here for a while, and then the wife bails out and says, I ain't going back, or the husband bails out and says, I can't deal with this anymore. I'm going out. Then you know what you got. The Solomon principle has done its job. But the point here in rule number 10 simply is give God, the Holy Spirit, and the church time to put Solomon's principle into play, to put both of you under the sword and let God work it out. You see, you don't have to, you don't have to make any decisions at that point. You're an autopilot. If you just do what's right in your life as the wife and the husband does what's right in his life as the husband, your thing's going back together. It's just that simple. You won't be able to stop it. It's an automatic course. You give me a woman who will do, put herself under the authority of a New Testament church and do what she needs to do under the Solomon principle. You give me the husband that does the same thing. I got some terrible news for you, good news, however you look at it. You're going to get back together. It's just automatic. It's the way it works. It's what's supposed to happen because God has called us to peace. Put a little dash of attitude in, guys. Put a little dash of reneging on what your problem really was you got a recipe now for disaster. And then you'll actually run around and scratch your head and try to blame it on everybody else or wonder why it didn't work. And the reason why it didn't work, because you're an idiot. God gave you a chance. God put you under the Solomon principle. And once things got comfortable again, then you go right back to your old ways, don't you? Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed at all. You don't want anybody in that closet. And so you, you know, you come up with all the things. Oh, I love you, but I just can't do that. I just, uh, oh, you're so full of crap. I'll tell you what, go sell that someplace else. Working on yourself is a full-time job. The only way it can be done with the Bible and Bible principles that will force us to do what's right, and here's what it does. The Solomon principle forces either the husband or the wife to do what's right and make it right, or it forces them out because they don't want to do what's right. In either case, you're, out of, you're not in charge of it. That is the best situation you can be in. You know, the best situation all of us could be in in life is what I went to early when we started, is to be in a position where we don't have to make one decision in life that God just makes them all for us. 
We don't have one responsibility whatsoever. We just give it all to him. Now, that's hard to get to, but I'm telling you, you can get close to that and realize that your decision is already made for you in that book. You don't want to do what the Bible says. That's all it is. It doesn't make you a bad person. It just makes you a rebellious person. That's all. Now, look at verse 17, 18, and 19. <clears throat> now, here it goes back to our, our great principle here. Verse 17. But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called everyone, so let him walk, and so ordain I in all churches. Is there any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is there any called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but the keeping of the commandments of God. Now, that's a weird verse. I'm going to tell you. It looks weird anyhow, doesn't it? It seems to be out of place. We're talking about marriage, divorce, remarriage. Now we're talking about being circumcised, like that's going to help anything. (laughs) But there's a principle here. There's a principle here. There's a principle here. And this principle goes along with verse 15. And understanding the unbelieving depart, let him depart. Now, follow me. And you you want to put your note in your Bible on this one because sooner or later... Somebody's going to ask you what this means. He uses the issue of circumcision as an example. And this is really, really easy. Here's the point. The Jews were told to get circumcised under the law. Abraham was given that all the way back in Genesis 12, 15. And so that's what they do. But the point he's making, though, even though that the Jews were circumcised, and the Gentiles were uncircumcised, and in the Old Testament, a Jew had to be circumcised, and a Gentile who wanted to become a Jew who was uncircumcised had to become circumcised under the Old Testament law. He's saying, but circumcision is not what made them God's people. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant. The fact that a man was circumcised in the Old Testament physically or not circumcised in the Old Testament physically didn't make him a child of God or the part of the nation of Israel. See, that's what he's saying. He's saying what I've already said. That's not what made God's people God's people. What made God's people was not circumcision, verse 19, but rather the keeping of the commandments of God. See that thing? This is exactly what I told you. He's saying it isn't a fact that you're circumcised or you're not circumcised that makes you God's child in the Old Testament. It is, do you follow what the Bible says? It isn't about what you say to me, how much you love God, you believe in God, or how long you've been saved, or how many churches you've been in. The bottom line is, do you do with the Word of God what it tells you to do? That's a great principle. Now, there's a great example of that in the Bible. And that example is found in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 15. Uh, verse chapter 13 and chapter 13, 14 and 15, excuse me. And it's the story of Saul. And Saul... Saul is one of the seven suicides in the Bible. And I've told you before that when you, when you want to understand why people commit suicide, the reason behind it, you study the seven suicides in the Bible and it gives you everything you need to know about why people lead to them they want to take their own life. But not all suicides in the Bible are somebody physically killing themselves. There's a spiritual suicide. You know what Saul does? He commits spiritual suicide. You know what, what a lot of God's people do? They commit spiritual suicide. Some of God's people running around live to be 90, 100 years old, and they commit spiritual suicide when they were 30. Saul's one of those kind of peoples, a picture child of God, who's always living his Christian life without biblical principles. 
He's always doing whatever he wants to do outside what the Word of God says. And of course, uh, you know, he carries himself on, the, on his personality traits. Saul was very tall, had a powerful countenance. He had very charismatic ways. And all those things look good on the outside, but when you read Samuel's definition of him in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 through 22, when Samuel told Israel what kind of leader he would be if they picked him over God, you know what Saul is? He's a bully. He's a big bully. He's somebody that stands up taller than everybody else, is bigger than everybody else. He doesn't have a lack of spirituality in him at all, and all he does is bully people. In truth of the matter, he's a coward. Because when David went out to fight Goliath, it should have been Saul that was higher than all the people that went. He let a little 14-year-old kid go out. You know why? Because most bullies are cowards when it comes to doing what's right. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know how to tell you. It's just the principle of this story. So we finally come down through this thing and we see where Saul was a king and Saul was a prophet. But Saul did not hold the office of being a priest. And I don't know if you know this or not, but in the Old Testament, a priest is the only one who could offer the sacrifice. And it's coming to the point on the day when the sacrifice needs to be made. And Samuel, who is the priest, has not arrived yet. It's getting late in the day. It has to be done before 6 o'clock. So it's probably about 5.30. And Saul comes to the point where, as always, Saul looks around and he says, well, it looks like it's up to me. God isn't going to come through. So he offers the sacrifice. At just about the time he offers that sacrifice, guess who shows up with 15 minutes to go who could have made the sacrifice? Samuel. Now that's a great principle because it shows you, it shows you that, that uh, no matter how late it gets in the day, let God, you never take charge of your life. Let God take care of it. Even if it's down to the last second, God will come through. He always does. You see, Saul was the people's choice, wasn't he? God's choice was David. There's a little thing in here. When you look at this thing back here, Saul was the people's choice. After Samuel told them what kind of king he would be, you got to read that back there in chapter 8. He says he's going to beat your children. He's going to whip you with scorpions. He's going to be the worst guy in the world. And they rather take him over the man God had for them. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of you and me continuing to make bad choices when we know what the end result is going to be, but we just don't want God getting into our closet. That's what that's a picture of. So what happens? He comes down here and First Corinthians, or 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, it says... Samuel shows up, and Saul does the same thing we all do. He rationalizes. Well, you know what? You weren't here, and God sacrificed. We got to do what's right with God, and you weren't here, and so I, I forced myself. Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? He says, a great principle. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. It isn't about what you do. It isn't about what you give, what you give up. It's about do you obey what the Word of God says? And in this canary scenario with, with 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in marriage, 
given this situation that we're talking about, it simply comes down with a Solomon principle, ladies and gentlemen. When you're faced with it, do you do what the Bible says? Do you put yourself under the structure of the church? Do you really want to work it out with your husband or your wife? Do you really want to make the thing work? Well, I got a headliner for you. There's only one way it's going to work. And that's God's way. That's God's way. Now, I'll leave you with this, and then we're done. Verse 20 through 24. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he is called. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. For he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Ye are bought with a price. Be ye not the servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein is called, therein, key word, abide with God. Now, rule number 12. This is a great comfort. Rule number 12 is to be satisfied, be patient and satisfied with the situation you're in. You may have got in here because you caused the problem, were part of it, or you may be a victim, but that's okay. Allow God uh, to work it out for your good and, and growth and for his honor and glory. Verse 1 illustrates the illustration of a slave, that he simply says that a slave should not be upset because he's a slave. Because this is the book of Philemon, isn't it? Because when a slave is the saved slave, realizes that he's saved, he realizes that he's free in Christ and nothing situation on this planet really matters. And that's why you find coming down through church history, one of the great testimonies of that concept with the Moravian missionaries. Moravian missionaries were, 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 were Germanic out of, out of Austria, Count Zindendorf greatest missionaries of, the, of their time period. And they actually were accounts of, of, of Moravian missionaries. Back then, slavery of the black man was rampant in this country and had went on for, till the Civil War, put an end to it. And there were Moravian missionaries who were white people who sold themselves into slavery for the rest of their lives, never to be free again, to be a missionary to the black slaves to win them to Christ because they knew that was the only way that they could reach them, was become one of them. They understood the concept of the book of Philemon and the concept right here. So he says in rule number 12, be satisfied, be patient with where you're at. Accept the situation you're in and let God, through the New Testament church and the biblical principles, work it out. Because he will. Once the Solomon principles enact, it will not take long for the light, when the lights come on, for the cockroaches to run for the dark. He says, verse 22, because if you're a saved man, then you understand that you're already a bond slave to Christ, and he's a good master. And no matter what your circumstances are in this planet, focus on the fact that you're free in Christ, and that's all that matters, and he's going to make a way for you in everything that you do. Great concept. Great concept in any situation, but here he's talking about marriage and if you find yourself in a situation. You're God's, you're not man's, verse 23. You do God's work, not man's work. You'll be a servant of God and not a servant of man. That's what he's saying. And then verse 24, he says, Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. Now I want to talk to you and leave you with this as we close today about abiding with God. Because that's where he closes it out in this particular section, and this is where we're going to close it out today. You see, the physical circumstances you find yourself in, good or bad, whether it's by your bad choices or good choices, 
that situation becomes once you get into the Word of God and become the Solomon principle in your life, that situation now becomes the property of God. You now become God's workshop for you and everybody connected with it to grow. And from this point on, it's on automatic pilot. If you continue to stay under the Solomon principles and grow, then God's going to work it out. Because one of our rules was God always takes care of the person who does what's right. If you don't do what's right, God, it, the Solomon principle either gets you right or gets you out. But you don't have to make those choices anymore. You just follow the principle that God's called you to peace and you abide with God. Now let's talk about the concept of brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. How do you abide with God? What's that mean? I gave you a verse a little while ago in John chapter 14, verse 23, that said, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. And my Father will love him, and he will come in unto him, here it comes, and make our abode with him. The word abode is the other word for abide. When he abides with you, he abodes in you. In other words, you abide with God in the word of God through biblical principles. I tell, talk a lot about biblical principles. I'm going to give you the greatest single verse in the Bible of what biblical principles should do in your life. I gave you faith, fact, feeling. I give you sinner, son, and servant. Now here's one for biblical principles. Learn them, love them, and live them. It's all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, and I want you to turn to that because I think you need to see this. This is what it takes when you're in a scenario and you're going to have pressure from your spouse who maybe doesn't want to do what's right. They want to reconcile, but they don't want the Bible to change them. You've got to stay and follow what 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, and you've got to abide in the circumstances that you are, and you have to abide with God. Here's how you do that. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6. Show you the greatest verse in the Bible on why and how you should apply Bible, Bible, biblical principles. This is why I give them to you all the time. Look at 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him because of the soul of all the people was grieved, and every man for his sons and for his daughters. Now, David's in great distress. You're in great distress at times in your life and my life. David's great distress is because David's made some bad choices, and the people now want to stone him. Your circumstances may be different, but great distress is always great distress, no matter what the, the, how it starts. Now watch this. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved. Every man for his sons and for his daughters. Here it comes. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. You know what that means? That means David took the principles of God in his distressful situation. He saw what the people wanted to do. He saw his distress, and then he saw what God was going to do with him, the principles. And in any given distressful situation, you just encourage yourself with the principles that God has given you that he's going to bring you through this. You take the principles of the Word of God, and you encourage yourself through the situation with them. You see now the value of learning, understanding, and cataloging biblical principles, getting them in your library spiritually, having them at your fingertips, that when you go through a great distress in your life and everybody's pulling at you and everybody's telling you to do this, all you have to do is get out those principles 
and see what God says about it versus what man says about it, <coughs> your own feelings say about it, your other spouse is saying about it, somebody, your mother-in-law is saying about it, whoever is saying about it, and you simply, in the time of great distress, encourage yourself in the principles that God's given you. You encourage yourself in the Lord his God because that's the only thing that will override the distress of what we go through because the world's going to pull on you, your own circumstances are going to pull on you, and you just take the principles that God has given you. Many of the things that we've talked about today, you stay with a Solomon principle and you just let this God work out your situation and get that person in or get that person out. In any case, you do what's right, because the rule says God always takes care of the person who wants to do what's right. A brother and sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We